Turning back in the Word of the Lord tonight to the book of Hebrews and to the chapter 9, Hebrews and the ninth chapter, and we'll read again verse 26 there, Hebrews 9, 26, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. With the Word of God open before us, we'll bow in a further word of prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy loving compassions. The Bible describes them as tender mercies. We pray as Thee that when we were deep dyed in sin and in iniquity and transgression, when we were committing everything the devil enticed us to and the flesh was able to do. We thank Thee that God in His kindness and in His love appeared, that He sent His only begotten Son to be the Redeemer of a fallen people, and then by His Spirit to take the work that Jesus accomplished on Calvary and apply it to our hearts by the operation of God the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray the double work in our building here tonight, the double take up thy word, whatever is of thine, rivet it to our hearts. May it be as it was on that Mount of Transfiguration, where when the disciples opened their eyes, they saw no man. Save Jesus only. And Lord, there is no point. The Bible tells us, put not confidence in princes. There is no point in resting on a broken reed that is a fellow man, because it's none but Jesus, none but Jesus, who can do helpless sinners like us good. And so our eyes must be on Him, our repentance towards Him, our faith in Him, and we pray that He will be kept central in all that is said through His Word this night. In Jesus' name, and to Thine eternal praise and glory we pray, Amen. It's a common thought in the mind of the person who is an unbeliever that God deals harshly with him or her. He or she imagines that God doesn't really recognize the value and the quality that is in me, that he holds too much pleasure back from me. That's why the devil was able to exploit Eve in Eden. And go down the line, yea, hath God said? Sure, Eve, you see the tree that God is telling you, you cannot, dare not, must not eat from. It's pleasant to the eyes. It's the only one that He won't allow you, but it's the best looking in the garden. And we are so susceptible to that lie, even today, that God is holding back pleasure from me, 
that he's looking upon my sin in too severe a light. And though we might say at times, well, I mean, that was beyond the line, and God would justly be annoyed by what I've done there and offended at my actions, still the ungodly man, the ungodly woman, believes that I have a claim on my Maker's favor. Surely I am too good to be ignored at the ending of time. Now, what's the outcome of that belief? Well, frankly, what man does is he erects uh, an imaginary tent of self-righteousness over his own head. And so he's pitching out there on the ground of his own goodness, and he thinks in his own head that this flimsy framework that he has made, his own good deeds, that's going to be enough to keep him safe and secure in the day of God's wrath and fierce anger. But that's a terrible blunder. But as soon as that same person once trusting in their own selves for their own goodness in the eyes of God as soon as they're wakened up by God the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit of God begins to work upon their heart and their conscience and uses the Word and brings that Word to bear upon their heart. They find dropping into their soul there's an awareness of their own sin and they see it as sin whereby they'd seen it as a bit of a mistake or an inconvenience in days gone by. That sense of self-righteousness, that covering, that tent, it just blows off in the wind, completely disappears. They can't see it, find it, don't want to even look for it again. And their goodness, they realize, you know what? That was no more substantial than the fog or the mist that appears in the morning and then disappears whenever the sun comes up. But with their conscience stirred, there's that added problem. This individual now sees themselves separated from God by the amount of sin that they have committed. They see there's a barrier. There's a great gulf between them and a holy God, and they can't bridge it by anything that they can do. They feel their terrible sinfulness before the eyes of an almighty God. They maybe read, for example, what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 1, and the verse 5 and 6, and they discover there that I'm not just spotted or speckled by sin, but I'm covered in it. The whole head is sick, they read there, and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores that have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. And they're saying, well, Isaiah here is painting a terrible picture of me. But spiritually, that's exactly who I am and what I've done. And over and over again, they find Jehovah is coming with the same consistent message at the end of Isaiah, as well as at the beginning, Isaiah 59 and verse 6, towards the end, God is saying, their webs shall not become garments, neither shall they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. And so that sinner begins to tremble. Maybe he breaks out into a cold sweat at night when these things come back to his mind and he rehearses those scriptures that he has heard and that one self-confident aspect that he had crumbles all around him and it gives way to quaking fear and he thinks, if God should catch up with me soon, 
I will be doomed and I will be damned. And he's sinking down into self-despair. I can't bridge the yawning gulf between me and God, he knows. There is no prospect of a union between myself, a foul sinner, and the Lord of glory who is so infinitely pure and I've been sinning against him. There is no way of bringing us two together. That's how he thinks. And that's a radical change in his thinking from the very beginning. Before his own sight, where he's charging God at the beginning with being too hard on him, now he is saying, oh, that was ridiculous to think like that. And that body of his becomes a fountain of tears and he's wailing in despair. I'm unclean, I'm wretched, I'm depraved, I'm vile, I'm so full of sin. What can be done for me? Just as he's dropping down into that dreaded darkness of despair and the sins like a burden on his back are pushing him down and squeezing him there, he reads Jeremiah. Chapter 31 and the verse 3, for example. And he hears this, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. And that mention of the love of God. What for me, for a guilty sinner, could God ever look upon me as an object of his compassion? How could that be? We've heard the story many times of one who came into a church service, all the stamps of sin about them, very evidently living a rough, hard life. And while many people in their church clothes would think, well, we'll not go and sit in that pew and we'll not sit beside that person because you never know. An old lady full of God's Spirit came up to that rough man put her arms around him and said, did you ever hear that God loves you? And that was like reading Jeremiah 31 and the verse 3, or Romans 8, and the verse 32, which says that God spared not His own Son for us, but He delivered Him up for us all. It's a marvelous message, and it tells in outline form the great story of redemption. And that's what ninth, the ninth chapter of Hebrews is really all about because it centers on the grand subject of redemption. We have our Lord here. If you read all the passages we did tonight, you'll find that He's being shown to us as a, a priest, far better than all the fancy-robed Jewish attendants who were known as priests in the Old Testament, standing at the altars of offerings day in, day out, far better than that because he's administering his priesthood from a more excellent sanctuary. There are a couple of main ideas, many little ideas, but we don't have time to go into the detail there. But from verse 1 to 24, for example, just to take a whole chunk of the chapter, we have the sanctuary wherein our priest is seated. Then the final few verses, 25 to 28, we have the sacrifice whereby our pardon is sealed. And it's that final segment of the chapter that we're going to delve into, the verse 26, actually tonight, and we see comfort. 
and we see cheer, and we have great encouragement for a troubled heart wrapped up here, because what it teaches is sacrifice. That's the only solution, the solitary solution. You feel your sin. You feel your estrangement from God. You want to be saved. How will you ever get into heaven? Sacrifice is the only solution. Consider with me the season that was appointed for this sacrifice. Because you'll read in Hebrews 9, the verse 26, these words, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared. So we have the season in its statement here. The free is in the end of the world. Well, you won't find that anywhere else in the New Testament because it's unique here. It's only in Hebrews 9 and the verse 26. So we need to give attention to it. What does it mean? It's obviously pointing to a particular time when a certain event took place. Now once in the end of the world. The time? It's that occasion when our Lord Jesus Christ appeared in the likeness of human flesh, took a body of our flesh upon Himself, and of course, without sin. It's when He offered Himself up to God on the cross at Calvary, and it's when by that same offering He condemned and He conquered sin. That appearing of His, or that revealing of Himself in His true character, for that's what He did at Calvary, revealed Himself in His true character. That's what the word appear really means here. It, it appeared in the past. There are three appearings of Jesus Christ in the latter part of the chapter. We have an appearance at the present time, for we are told in verse 24, Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, in other words, not earthly temples, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So as we're assembled here tonight, for the people of God up in heaven, our Lord Jesus, He's praying for them there. He's interceding for us, even as we assemble here, and He's doing it now, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And then we have another appearance that goes right into the future. So we're talking prospective time here. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, verse 28, and unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So that's His second coming an appearance still to take place. It's in the future. Who can tell how far? And yet our text is talking about another appearance, one that has already happened in the past, in verse 26. Therefore, we read this expression, the end of the world. And we're sort of thinking, well, this writer to the Hebrews here, when he writes that Christ appeared in the end of the world, surely he would have known that there was going to be, from Calvary, another 2,000 years at least of history. Why does he use the phrase that he appeared in the end of the world? If he died on the cross at Calvary 2,000 plus years ago, 
Maybe he was misjudged here. Maybe he was confused here. Maybe he thought the death of the Savior had signaled the end of the world, and he jumped to the conclusion, and he wrote it down, just like some others. Down through the centuries of time, they've said, look at the signs of the times. They are saying to us, Jesus is coming soon, coming imminently. And they've said that 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, and still we're here today. They must have got it wrong. Maybe the writer of the Hebrews made a mistake here. Well, he didn't. We have the season in its significance. When is the end of the world? Well, we go to the Bible. The Bible is its own best interpreter. So we turn, for example, to Galatians 4 and verse 4. And we're told there, very interesting expression, but when the fullness of the time was come. And that sounds like a big chime and a big clock. The clock of heaven. The world had gone on and spun around and century had given way to century. And then here's the time that came when the fullness of the time was come. God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law. So that is Jesus coming to earth. As a babe in Bethlehem, he came when? In the fullness of time. In other words, the time was ripe. The time was mature when God sent the Savior to this earth. Then we have a look at 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11. That says, Now all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Now, that's Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and as he put pen to paper to write this letter to Corinth, we find it's round about A.D. 57 or in and about that particular time, and so he's writing to them just a mere within 50 years of our Lord's death here, virtually only plus 20 years from the day that our Lord was crucified, and he's told them that upon you at this time, the ends of the world, they are come. That makes a statement amazing. In the ends of the world, Paul is saying we're living right then. When the fullness of the time was come, Christ appeared. And so his appearing in human flesh marked the beginning of that period that's spoken of as the end of the world. One Bible commentator said it was the climax of the ages. And the birth of Christ was that, followed by the death of Christ. And we have those multitude of Old Testament prophecies fulfilled by his life and by his death. We find he's the conclusion, the peak of the Old Testament priestly system, and therefore the priest in Hebrews 9. We find also he's the changer of the course of history. That's why our whole calendar system has changed after his birth, his manifestation. Spark the beginning of that period known as the end of the world. That's the season in its significance. Then think of the season in its singularity. We're told here, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared. So all the focus of Hebrews 9 is on this one event, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared. 
If you'd been a Jew and going up with all of the Aaronic offerings through time, and Aaron and his sons, and then right down through the generations, they're still there at the tabernacle, at the temple. They're offering up blood of bulls and of goats and turtle doves and pigeons and all the rest of it. But they're still at the business. But when Jesus comes, when He presents Himself, when He appears in the end of the world, He does it one time and once for all. That's the significance of the words. One time only, once for all, does He make that sacrifice on that center tree. One of Philip P. Bliss's hymns says, once for all. O sinner, receive it. Once for all. O brother, believe it. Cling to the cross. Your burden will fall. Christ has redeemed us once for all. There can't be another sacrifice. There can't be the shedding of His blood again. There can't be any new death as the payment for our sin. We're told in unmistakable terms that our Lord Jesus Christ, He offered Himself once and will not do it again. In verse 25 and verse 26, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then, if he was offering himself like that, he must often have suffered since the foundation of the world. And then Paul is saying, but that didn't happen. Now, once hath he appeared, there cannot be any repetition of this sacrifice. And those who claim we are offering up Christ again, we're offering up Him afresh. We can do this on a daily basis. No, you can't. That is entirely against God's plan. That is a cardinal untruth. He hath appeared once in the end of the world to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And that brings us from the season appointed for the sacrifice to the sin that was abolished by the sacrifice. Why has he come? Why did he undergo all the humiliation he did? Why did he become a servant, take upon him a body of flesh, submit himself to the death of the cross, ignominious, humiliating as that was, cruel, and agonizing as it was. Why did he do it all? He came to put away sin. That was his purpose. And so we're talking about how he came to distance that sin from us. He didn't merely come to put away the filth, to put away the guilt, to wipe away the stain, though he did all of that. He didn't merely come to just take the penalty and the punishment off it. He came to put away sin itself. Sin being the fountain of every malpractice in the world. And he didn't just come to apply a little solution and purify a stream of it here and an outbreak of it there, but he came to deal with the source of that pollution. And so we read here, once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's a glorious word, appearing to put away sin. 
I think of an Old Testament prophet by the name of Micah. And in Micah 7, 19, this is what he notes. He will subdue our iniquities, and I will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. That's wonderful. If my sins are there, and that's a picture, of course, as to where they are, that means nobody is going to dredge them up again. In the shoreless stretches of the mighty ocean, Jesus drowned my sins. Sheila O'Gahan was a factory girl in Ulster. Her health went. They advised her what you should do is take a holiday by the seaside. But in her heart of hearts, there was a bigger issue troubling her far deeper than the issue of her health, the problem of her sin. She was really struggling with that. One day, if you can picture it, she's on those octagonal rocks, looking at the waves as they break against the giant's causeway. Her Bible's on her knee, and she comes to this passage in Micah, chapter 7, verse 19. He will subdue our iniquities, and I will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And she surveyed the scene in front of her, and she said to herself, My sins are all cast into the depths of the sea. A few months later, her health really broke, and she died. But this verse was found in her desk. I will cast in the depths of the fathomless sea all thy sins and transgressions, whatever they be. Though they mount up to heaven, though they sink down to hell, they shall sink in the depths, and above them shall swell all the waves of my mercy. So mighty and free, I will cast all their sins in the depths of the sea. Now, the psalmist changes the picture. And instead of the sea, he's talking about the expanse of this world. And in Psalm 103, in verse 12, he says, As far as the east is from the west, and nobody can really tell that, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Jesus came to put away sin, and I am thankful for that. Not only that, He came to divorce it from us. These words that were used here in Hebrews 9.26, the words put away, they speak of a disannulling, of an abolition, literally translated onto a setting aside. That's what they mean. Sin is set aside from us. Sin is divorced from us, taken of our record, taken of our account. Sin and my soul are no more married together. There's a divorce that has taken place. Christ has taken the load upon Himself, and he has hurled it into a sepulcher where it lies buried forever. It's clean gone. And that's why as you read down Hebrews chapter 9, you'll find that sin is dealt with in at least three ways. Our text, what we're mentioning at the moment, 9 and 26, it's put away. In verse 28, our Lord is pictured there as bearing the sins of many. 
He carries it away. In the 14th verse, if you go back to that, you'll see the work of Christ is to purge our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. So let's put it like this. Delve into the past. Think of the present. Look into the future as well. Every sin was laid in Christ. Sins of the tongue, sins of the thought, sins of the heart, sins of the hand, sins against man, sins against God, sins of murder and lying and adultery and blasphemy and fornication and name every sin you may, everything, all was laid on Jesus. For he became the reservoir into which the sins of all of his people flowed. And then he emptied it all out by his atoning sacrifice. The filth of his people is removed, taken away from the sight of God, put away, abolished at Calvary. My guilt and my despair, Jesus took on him there, and Calvary covers it all. That's why we have the challenge in Romans 8. And the verse 33 and 34, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. And those old barriers between my sin and a holy God, the barriers are broken down. Christ is smashed into the ground. Every partition wall that our sin ever set up, and that spanning of the vast gulf that existed between me and him has been bridged by that atoning work on Calvary. He appeared to put away sin, and he did it. The sin that was abolished by his sacrifice. So we have the season appointed for the sacrifice, the sin abolished by the sacrifice, and finally the substitution accomplished by the sacrifice. How exactly did he put away the sin when he appeared? But now once, Hebrews 9 and 26 tells us, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin. How? By the sacrifice of himself. Mark those five words in our English Bible well, by the sacrifice of Himself. It was a purposeful sacrifice. There was a reason attached. He didn't just die for the sake of it. He died, He atoned, He did it to put sin away. Notice he didn't come into this world to abolish iniquity by his example, although his example was full of goodness and full of virtue. He didn't come into the world to remove guilt by his teaching and a little good maxim here and a fine rule there and all the rest of it, authoritative though the teaching was. Rather, he came to banish sin by his sacrifice. Nothing less would do. So it was a purposeful sacrifice. Not only that, it was a personal sacrifice. Our text makes it clear tonight in Hebrews 9 and 26 that our Lord took away transgression by the sacrifice. And what was the sacrifice? It wasn't a sacrifice of His honor. 
It wasn't a sacrifice of His glory. It wasn't a sacrifice of His wealth, although He's paying in pound coins for it. It wasn't a sacrifice of His reputation, although He parted with all of these. It was the sacrifice of Himself. His whole body bled at Calvary. His soul was pulverized by the weight of our sin at Calvary. It was a personal sacrifice. And in Leviticus 17, 11, we read, It is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. In 1 John 1 and 9, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin, and you and I could never make this kind of a sacrifice. Not only was it purposeful and personal, it was a perfect sacrifice. Nothing needed to be added to what Christ did. Nothing should be taken away from what He accomplished. By this one sacrifice, once offered, He made an end of sacrificing for all times. And how do we know that? Well, in Hebrews 10, the verse 12 and 14, we're told, but this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, and that sitting down indicated the work is done. For by one offering, verse 14, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Is this what you're relying upon for all eternity? Are you trusting in yourself? That's a broken reed. Or are you trusting in the mercy of God through Christ? A lady once said to a very unhappy man, you know, there's a great difference between your religion and mine. Your religion consists of two letters. D-O, do. Mine consists of four. D-O-N-E, done. Thank God for that. It's not what I do. It's what He has done. And of course, in Sunday school or maybe children's meeting, we would have sung the children's chorus. There on the tree, Jesus suffered for me, and it's done, done, done. Can't be undone. Doesn't need to be redone. Why? Because it's a perfect sacrifice. And I close by saying it's a powerful sacrifice. Our Lord Jesus Christ stood in our place. And if you trust Him, then He stood in your room. If you turn from your sin, then He stood in your place. And God accepts the voluntary sacrifice of His Son for you. And because of Him, He exclaims to you, freely do I pardon you. For Jesus' sake. And often, when I felt the burden of my sin, I've thought, that sin of mine, it's too great to be put away by even the greatest of powers. And then I turn and look, and I see the excellence of my Savior's person. I see the perfection of His manhood, always and ever without sin. I see the glory of His Godhead, and that I cannot fully describe, not even partially describe. I see the wonderful degree of His passion on Calvary. I see the solid value of His obedience. And as the hymn writer said, I hear the words of love. 
I gaze upon the blood. I see the mighty sacrifice. And because of that, I have peace with God. As a sinner, once at war with God, then at war with myself, I'm now at peace with myself and peace with God because of what Christ has done, an accomplished substitution, an almighty sacrifice. 